0: Welcome to the Rainmaker Multiplier on Demand, a podcast for leading financial professionals or rainmakers and their teams that offer support for securing a successful future. From marketing help to staffing structure, listen and subscribe for actionable insights from advisors and skilled professionals alike. As 2023 comes to a close, we are excited to share portions of our top three most popular podcasts of the year with our listeners. To begin, we are spotlighting our hottest bucket plan on demand episode, How to Kickstart Client Relationships with One Phone Call. In this episode, we have our skilled team members sharing insights during one of our coffee breaks on how right fit calls are the launch pad for client engagements. Enjoy.
1: Here and, and over at, at JL Smith, popular topic of right fit calls how we handle these, what's the process, popular questions, tips, and tricks, and we're going to. We're going to cover a lot of that today. We've got our our two experts here with us today. First, Gary Pelfrey from JL Smith, our Director of Business Development and Right to Call Extraordinaire over there. And on the C2P side, Andre Henson, our Advisor Growth Specialist. Many of you have probably talked to Andre over the last couple of years as, as he's helping us on that side. And we thought this would be a great opportunity to have them share their experience, their expertise of how they've refined their craft in this area and allow all of you to ask the, the pressing questions you have uh, in the group format here and kind of cover those on uh, a format where, you know, all together and kind of build off each other in this format. So Gary, we'll, we'll kick things off with you. And I know we, we just had a, a call. We had one yesterday and one last week with, with Gina Pellegrini too, from the Pellegrini team over there. And, we were hitting on right fit calls. And I think you brought up uh, a very interesting point of it's, it's really, you look at it more as a trust call more than anything. You know, we call it the right fit call, but it's the trust call. Cause it's all about developing rapport, building that relationship and having to do that very early on in, in a call like this. And, and in many or most cases on the phone before you even get into the business side of it. And so, Knowing that, and, and I think the terminology there is great, how do you develop that rapport so quickly? And then how do you know when in the call you shift from that gathering rapport to, to doing the actual qualifying?
2: Yeah, Thank you, Matt. And thanks for having me today as a guest barista. Yes. I mean, really, it is a trust build call. And, you know, usually by the, the time they've gotten to me and they're on my calendar, they've already told us yes, usually a few times. And what I mean by that is they've told us, yes, we want the education from a virtual seminar or an in-person workshop. And then they, again, have said, yes, I want to talk to someone. So, you know, right there, you know, they're giving us the opportunity to start building that trust. And that's super important because regardless of where that prospect comes from, whatever source that may be, we're tying it back to how they found out about us. And then from there asking, you know, an open-ended question like, Hey, what is, what is your main concern? Or what is your biggest takeaway from the workshop? A big part of the trust build is listening and feeling through the phone, sensing, you know, what is genuine and kind of what's just an area maybe they you know are throwing out there at you as a topic. But the trust build really starts, you know, initially when they say, yes, we want the education, yes, I want to talk to someone. And then, you know, that open-ended question after tying it back to the source, you know, gets them talking. And sometimes, Matt, I'll even say, just kind of share with me what's on your mind, because they're going to give me a lot of what's on their mind. And a lot of it's what I'm going to ask anyway. And then from there, I'll have questions and fill in the gaps from there. Some folks are a little more open than others, obviously, and then the ones that are a little more reserved, you have to kind of take baby steps on the call. You know, there's others that are just going to kind of open up and they're going to tell you everything uh, just by that open ended question. So that definitely a trust build. Uh, You're going to get a few opportunities with some spitball questions or concerns to kind of, um, you know, show your stripes, if you will. And uh, you just make sure you nail it on that. And then from there, you know, it's pretty much open to gathering and listening and, and gathering those top goals, priorities that they, they feel are most important to them.
1: Thank you. And how about from your perspective, Andre? And I know, you, you know, you're doing this here, but you did this in a role just like, like Gary before you came to C2P. And I know we've even had discussions on, you know, sometimes you have to just keep digging to the you know, the real pain point. Sometimes they don't They don't know what they don't know about that. So how, how do you approach that?
3: Yeah. And it goes back to as well, like these are like, just like Gary said, they've already interacted with you usually through a piece of content, through a webinar or a uh, prospect event. So they've already said yes a few times. What I really try to do, knowing that I am sort of the tip of the spear, like for the organization, how can you represent not only the company, but the other advisors and the value you bring is I like to bring the human element into it a little bit more. So I'll, for example, like just this last week, whenever I talk with someone and even back in my previous days, like working at an FMO, it's how do you bring that human element? Because they're only really going to remember the feelings from this initial call. It's not going to be what percentage of taxable income are you worried about this year. It's not what are your costs? What is the things going on in the market? Like that's all great and stuff, but They've already interacted with the numbers side, so I like to bring the human side. So, for example, for the past week, everyone knew that I talked to from California to New York City. Everyone knew it's my my wife's birthday this month. They know that we've been together five years, so in lieu of that, we've got like five surprises that we're going to be doing this month. The week before that, everyone knew that Andre was having car troubles And he had to get up at six in the morning to try to make sure the car was working so the wife could take the good car to pick up the dog food after it was just a whole thing and like sharing that sort of stuff it's that softer stuff because once they get off the call, if you've done your job well and you've asked the right questions there's going to be a next step, there's going to be a next conversation for them to get into the numbers but what they're going to remember is do I like this guy, do I like the person I met with did they make me feel good. And it's those feelings that we really got to remember sometimes, even as advisors in the industry to focus on the softer stuff.
1: Yeah. It's the old, you know, people don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Go uh, ahead, Gary. Yeah, I
2: agree with that. You know, it's one of the things that said is you want to feel through the phone. It is, you know, that, that emotion that's on their mind. Right. And that's why I have them list out, you know, the top three goals, priorities, because that's always going to be that heartfelt you know, question. They've probably never been asked that. And it allows you to pivot back to that and reiterate that if for whatever reason, maybe they do fall off the calendar and you need to get back in touch with them. It's, you know, hey, are these things still important to you? Have you addressed these things? So it's that emotion and feeling around that. Jason had a question. Yeah, um,
4: Gary, I, I just want to piggyback off Andre. I, I just thought that was so powerful what you just shared, Andre, because, you know, we all hear the rule that you should do 80%, you know, listening, 20% talking as the advisor, right? So it's all about the questions you ask and getting them talking. But the 20% you do talk, you need to make sure you're humanizing yourself so they can relate to you and you're making a connection. And honestly, like we all have gotten on the phone... With people that are just trying to pitch, right? Right out of the gate, they're trying to sell, they're trying to pitch, and it's a huge turnoff. But all of a sudden, you're like taken back when they're telling you about their, you know, the dog or the five year anniversary of their car or whatever. I mean, it's seriously, it's brilliant because it humanizes you and it kind of like brings you to their same hey, we're all dealing with life, everyday life and making that connection. So that was just awesome, Andre. Yeah,
3: I can even go one step further. There's another thing I try to do on every single call when I talk to someone and that's try to make them laugh. You'd be surprised how much leeway you can get. Even if you don't know all the answers, you don't know all the numbers and you can't answer their really specific questions. If someone likes you, if you can make someone laugh and they enjoyed being on the phone with you, Not only are they gonna be more looking forward to your next call, which is gonna be more impactful, more valuable, more exciting for you as a firm and for the client, but it's gonna be also like, yeah, I've enjoyed talking with this person. Imagine the other people that they have there. Imagine what other resources they have, the other, the community that they're building, other like clients and stuff. So yeah, if trying to make someone laugh, I try to do that, honestly, in the first 60 seconds of talking to someone. It just eases everything else that you can do on the phone.
0: Next, we dive into a Rainmaker Multiplier on Demand episode from earlier in the year titled Questions That Convert with Phil Jones. In this episode, Jason L. Smith interviews best selling author Phil Jones, who shares vital insights and specific questions advisors can use to close more sales. Welcome,
4: everybody. This is Jason Smith to the Rainmaker Multiplier, and we have a guest today that I was a uh, speaker at the MDRT Edge conference and um also uh, Phil was the speaker there and he was um he was the highlight session that I personally sat through I had pages and pages of uh, great notes one liners ways to position things bought his book listened to his podcast and uh, figured I wanted to turn him on to you because he has he has some fantastic ways to say things and position things that uh, that can multiply your results certainly as you're talking to potential
5: prospects and clients. So Phil welcome to the podcast. Hey Jason thanks for having me here it's a delight to be able to chat and continue our conversation from the from the corridors at Edge. Absolutely and so
4: Phil like uh, give us a little bit of background in
5: yourself to start. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we probably used the whole show for this, but no, I've been in I've been in business for some time, started a business at 14 years of age, started knocking on the doors of my neighbors, asking them if they wanted their cars washed. And um, by the age of 15, was running a business that had me making more money than all of my school teachers. And I've been building entrepreneurial businesses ever since. Had a little stint in the corporate world. Youngest ever sales manager for a business called Debenhams Department Stores, uh, store turnaround project consultant for um, a big furniture retailer group in the UK. Head of Retail Commercial Director on the Licensing side for two Premier League soccer clubs, built an overseas investment property business through an independent financial advisor network that turned over 240 million pounds at its peak, and then since 2008, I started a small sales training company that's then grown into the business that I run today, which is having me speak on multiple stages around the world, being paid to speak 3,500 times, uh, written 11 best-selling books, um, spoke in 59 countries, worked with over 800 different organizations. But really, my work falls into just three areas. One is the acquisition of more customers. Two is getting customers to come back more often. And three is getting them to spend more money when they shop. So that has us looking at all areas of business growth and particularly spend more of my time for people who need to sell stuff, but don't typically see themselves as salespeople. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's a strong correlation towards how my work can help professional advisors in this capacity and and particularly financial planners that are looking at more of a holistic offering for their customers, because it isn't waiting for them to say, hey, can I buy from you? It is more a case of you being able to help uncover obstacles, help create levels of empathy in terms of their world, and then help make recommendations towards something that they weren't necessarily in the market for themselves because you have a deeper understanding of their unique circumstances. So I, you know, that's a, a, a potted industry in me. And my little book that you're referencing is my book Exactly What to Say, which of all of um of my books is my sort of runaway bestseller by a, you know, a 20, 30 times X of, of any of my other pieces of published work.
4: And how about um how about your podcasts, uh Phil, for those um I have a, a, really a little podcast, podcast that I do that.
5: in seasons when I have fun with it. It's a, it's a program called Words with Friends, which is where I chat with other authors, speakers, people who are in my social circle from a, um, an educator point of view, and I chat with them about one word. But I don't think we've recorded an episode on Words with Friends for about 18 to 24 months. So I generally tend to do my podcast in seasons when time presents itself. And okay. it's always more of a, a, of a passion project and a, and a reason to reconnect with people that I adore with a frame around it, recording it for the gift of others. So that's how how podcasting shows up in my world. Got it. So your best way to consume your
4: content is probably to uh, buy the book. Exactly what to say?
5: Yeah, exactly what to say is core offering. We run certification programs. I have 37 independent trainers that, that, that run programs courses across uh, the US um, and into Canada and now in the UK too what else we have going down is a giant web presence where uh, we go bigger than the book exactly what to say so exactlywhattosay.com has a reams and reams and reams of articles has reams of video content all available for free we do a 31 day challenge for free there and what we're looking for people to be more aware of is is how to be more intentional with language in all the moments that matter so that expands way past the book bleeds into parenting bleeds into leadership bleeds into don't say this say that instead all sorts of examples that that bring people aware to um, just how inefficient we are as human beings with language. And when time is crunched and when we only have limited windows to be able to show up and influence and impact key moments, often the difference between us and people like us is knowing exactly what to say, when to say and how to make it count. It's it's being intentional with your word choices at the right time. And I'm on a lifelong mission to raise people's awareness to how to Grow competence and confidence in their word choices. Oh, that's
4: awesome! Yeah, I tell you, Phil. Um, you know what I loved about your session at MDRT Edge, and um, and uh, as I was thinking about it, I re-listened to the session of MDRT Edge, and you know, just the um, the magic words, right? And some of the things that you had shared. Um, I'd love to love for the listeners to hear a little bit more about you know, kind of a little bit of the background to um, you, you even gave a disclaimer, right, <laughs> making sure that uh, you're using it in an honest and ethical way,
5: but uh, because these things are so powerful. Yeah, completely. And, and, and exactly what to say is, is the distillation of some of the biggest principles around influence and persuasion categorized into a sequence of words. See, I could write a giant great big book that introduces core principles of influence and persuasion, and I know that most financial planners will never read it. Why? Because it's asking for a commitment of 16, 24 hours of their life to be able to consume it. And if they were to read it, they'd struggle to find examples. So what exactly what to say is, is uh, examples of 23 key principles around influence disguised as a specific word choice that allow people to be able to get their own practical application, their own purposeful experience back as quick as humanly possible. And it's sequences of words that talk straight towards the subconscious brain, sequences of words that allow us to have more influence, more efficacy in life's critical conversations. We shared a couple of examples in that presentation at Edge, but all of the examples exist in the book, Exactly What to Say. And it just so happens that the audiobook, if for those of you that like listening, is the most listened to nonfiction audio book of all time. So there is not a nonfiction audio book that has been listened to more than Exactly What to Say, which is a really cool statistic to be able wow. to have out there for those of us that like numbers. Good for you, man. That's amazing. So why don't we jam on this for a second if we're going to look to be useful to your listeners here today, Jason. And and what are some of the scenarios that planners find themselves in right now where they could benefit from having more influence or they could benefit from being able to utilize word choices to accelerate the speed of decision or to accelerate the speed of knowledge transfer?
4: So just to give you an idea of the process, right, a lot of our advisors, the way that they're meeting new clients is – through referrals, number one, and then number two, through doing some type of marketing, uh, outbound marketing. And so from there, what we teach our processes is they get on uh, a right fit call. And so what a right fit call is, is about a 20 minute phone call where the objection is to, you know, identify what resources they've accumulated to meet their financial goals, what the top one, the two most important financial goals they have are, and ultimately just give them an idea of what our process would be and what the next step would be to go into a discovery meeting and then ultimately design the plan and then deliver the plan to them. And then at that point, go into the dedicated phase, which is implementation of the plan that we built. Um, But that fit call is, is pretty crucial in, you know, gaining uh, buy-in and qualifying the right people and setting the stage and, you know, to get them to commit to go to the next step, which is a discovery meeting.
5: Okay, got it. So what you've got is you've got this exploratory call that is like a a quick cocktail after work before agreeing to go on a date. And then the discovery call is the date. And then following the date is a decision as to whether we're going to, you know, maybe move in together. There you go. Got it. So if we look at how we can be perhaps more efficient, even in that front end call, that is there a fit call, is the goal of those calls really is to be as strategically curious as possible at the front end of the call. Your goal is to not make any advice or any recommendations without the ability to be able to say words like the words because of the fact that you said. So because of the fact that you said blank, blank, and blank, then what my recommendation would be is blank, blank, and blank. That's a very easy structure to be able to follow from a word choice point of view. In theory, it's much harder in practice because you have to collect the blanks. Right. And collecting the blanks is about being strategically curious in those early conversations. So you can put meaningful information back into those blank moments. Simple questions prefaced with words like help me understand. So help me understand why you believe that it might be a good fit for us to work together. Well, look how all of a sudden now you're not doing the selling, they're selling you. You mentioned earlier, you get a lot of people via referral. Now, what happens in the early stage of that fit call? They say, well, you know, I know that Jeffrey's worked with you with his wife for like seven years and they've got great results. And, and, and we didn't feel we were ready for you when we first found out about you. But since then, what we've managed to do is this, 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 this. And I'm in a little bit of chaos right now and I need somebody to help me put the reins on it. Yikes, right? Like within 90 seconds, they just said, like, please be my financial planner just because we used to help me understand preface. And they help me understand preface is typically a great replacement for the words. Tell me. Yeah. Quite often in these kind of calls, you reach for the words. Tell me and tell me as a command order. You yeah. know, tell me what you've got in place right now. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me the last time. Tell me, tell me, tell me. It feels like I got to defend this position. Help me understand, pulls them in and says, look, I'm here to help you. And I'm keen to explore the possibilities of where we're right together. So those early calls, swap tell me for the words, help me understand and watch how what happens is that they they bring you into the call. There's also a process of education that needs to come in these calls, right? Like this isn't a they're buying a product from you. They're committing to a relationship from you. They're committing to some form of long term journey. And you might need to get some context. In every one of these conversations, you're going to want to insert content. But if you insert content before you've earned context, you just made the job a little harder and you just made the decision a little noisier.
0: And for our final pick of the year, we have an episode from a Woman's Clarity podcast, How to Build a Dementia Care Plan and Team with Bill Cohen. This is a very moving interview where Bill shares tips on how you can help your clients feel financially, emotionally and mentally supported when dealing with a dementia diagnosis in the family. Listen in for important details that you can take back to your practice.
6: So before we go into how
0: to create
6: and coordinate your dementia care team and plan, can you share what are the types of family caregivers because we on the financial services side, we look for the solutions to help the and the client Mm -hmm. but we also are looking to also help their family so if and when something happens we can support the entire picture
7: that's a great question because there are different relationships and uh my family was almost a microcosm of all of them okay (laughs) because right and i'll tell you some of the good parts but then i'll get into some of the less appealing relationships first Family is how you define it or you design it. It's not just your family, your relatives. It's whoever is close around you. It could be your neighbors, friends, ex-co-workers or co-workers, uh, maybe charitable organizations, your church, a social service like a Kiwanis or Elks. So it can be any of those. Now, right after the hurricane, we were kind of collaborative together the family. We had to get my mother and my stepfather back in gear, get them back in shape, because they lost virtually everything. Mm -hmm. And everybody pitched in in different ways, whether it was funds or getting mom reset up on a Mac, uh, you know, whatever we needed, people were stepping up and helping. They were in crisis. So because and as I like to say, I mean, the hurricane was a day that changed our lives, everybody. And this became what I called Team Sheila, my mother's name. And that it became later on my walk team for the walk-in Alzheimer's. So this is is my 10th year leading Team Sheila. So then it became a little more sequential. I mean, I'm involved throughout and I'm handling all the different things, not just the care, but the finances and the legal and the real estate and the taxes, everything. First, she's with family in uh, North Carolina, then other family in Florida before I moved her out here. So taking turns on the care
6: right. then
7: I move her out to Oregon and along with an aunt who moved out here from Manhattan and stayed and my my wife it was really closer to solitary I was the primary guy I'm handling just about everything but with some support indirectly from my family which was gold it was invaluable now in my case and I would, this will lead into the other types my aunts in particular had a lot of opinions. Fortunately, they always had my mother's best interest at heart. They didn't have ulterior motives. And I listened to them, but they also knew my name was on the power of attorney. My name was on the advance directive and as a uh, personal health representative. So I at least listened, but they knew I had the final say, but they also knew. I also had my mom's best interest at heart now. That doesn't always work. There are other kinds where they're off at a distance, they're not helping, or they're giving unsolicited advice. And this is where it gets difficult and dicey because they may have ulterior motives like they don't agree how you're doing it, or they don't want any money spent because they want theirs whenever the family member passes away. They may not say it, but it becomes apparent. So this is where I come in to try to help families get on the same page and come to decisions that are in the best interest. Now, I have a couple of theories where if somebody has uh, other opinions, one, you can say, well, that's a great idea. Why don't you take that on? So one one of two things is probably going to happen. Either they're gonna shut up, which is also that's a win,
3: mm-hmm.
7: or they're gonna say, "Oh, okay, sure, I'll do that." You know, even from long distance, I can handle the the ordering things or handle the the finances, and that's also a win is you have them to help you out. Now the other way would be, especially if it's way off base, unsolicited advice, bad information, not in your loved ones' best interests. I'll say. Hmm, that's interesting. I'll think about it and then ignore it.
6: Yeah, I like to say that's that's interesting. I'll take that under advisement. Yes.
7: Yeah, exactly. Same, similar concept, exactly. So that's where you have different kinds of caregivers and different kinds of family arrangements and there are different ways of handling them. Uh, I have increasingly become a facilitator and now a trained elder mediator because as we know, Some families can't even decide on ordering pizza, let alone their family members care. So I try to help them come to a decision that everybody can live with. They may not get everything they want, but at least we'll keep them talking to come to that decision. I make it very clear that I am not a therapist. I can't fix your family problems.
6: I feel very grateful that my brother, my sister and I, we have a very good communication system. Now I'm 1,900 miles away. My brother is 15 minutes away and my sister is two and a half hours away. So I am always searching for ways I can best support them mm-hmm. because it is difficult. I mm-hmm. mean, there are days I want to, I want to give a solution, but I'm not there. I can't do it. Um, so it's, 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 very challenging, but I'm very blessed that I have siblings who I can communicate with. Now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. Because we're all three unique individuals with very, very strong personalities. But our parents, their care is number one. How I feel falls down the ladder. So it's always important to put that first. But based on information I've received from you, there are five types of caregiving. Mm. Collaborative, uneasy, solitary, Mm. observed, and tag team.
7: And that's what I was just talking about. Oh, right.
6: right. But you had names for them. But I, I just like to give it names because sometimes people are searching for a label for what they're doing. And it sometimes helps them to figure out what where they are on the wheel and where they need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're facilitating conversations with family members to figure out the best care, in your opinion, is there one type of care that's better than the others? Or is there is it always whatever's gonna work best for the client, the, the, per- the loved one?
7: There's a phrase in our industry, and I, I embellish it, if you've seen one case of Alzheimer's, if you've seen one case of dementia, if you've seen one case of aging, you've seen just one case. There are common threads running throughout and those will come in handy about some basic concepts to try to cover in terms uh, of the care, how to do it, when, et cetera. I mean, this it's hard to find that Goldilocks just right it might be too early, too late, too much, too little, that type of thing. Uh, but at least uh, if you're talking, you're trying to come to some common ground. Uh, that's what you want to shoot for. Uh, when it, it, you don't have to agree on every little detail, but if you, in general, you know every minutiae, in general, if you're in agreement about the care of your family member then that's gold. And that's one of the first things I say to families, I think I may have even said it to you. And if I didn't, then I will now that pat yourselves on the back. Bravo. If you are doing that as a team, you're working together on it and you can play to each other's strengths, weaknesses, somebody who doesn't, who hates finances, you know, maybe so one of your other family, you love it, but they don't, you're the right person maybe to handle that. Somebody else, of course, is nearby and let them handle the hands-on caregiving and the, and the doctor appointments. Somebody else uh, can handle the legal stuff. So the, it's just, each family is going to be a little bit different, but you want to kind of have a checklist. These are all the different issues that need to go into the care plan and to incorporate that care team. And what I tried to do, because again, this is something that was very challenging back in the mid 2000s, was you can imagine what it was like trying to find information or resources. Uh, it was We have uh, a wonderful directory here in the Northwest. You've probably seen a retirement connection guide, which mm-hmm. lists just about everybody. We have the internet. The internet. That didn't exist back, barely existed in the 2000s. It was basically the old line. I would presume that you and the rest uh, your listeners are old enough to remember the line, let your fingers do the walking through the yellow pages. That's basically what we were doing.
6: You mean my booster seat when I was a kid?
7: <laughs> exactly. There you go. That one, that one, right. And so- it's, a, it's, a, it's you have much more information today, but how do you know who is the best person to work with? Who can you trust? Who is vetted? And that's what I attempt to do, whether it's the elder law attorney or a home care agency or a housing advisor. I have my A-team. These are the people that you can trust will take care of. And I pretty much have that for each category.
6: So before we go on to creating, I guess I feel like there's two different plans we create. We create the plan for the person needing care Mm -hmm. and we create the plan on like for myself, how do I support the caregiver? Mm -hmm. So. I'm going to let you take the, the direction you'd like to start with. Mm-hmm. Let's, or would you like to start with how do we create a plan for the loved one mm-hmm. first? Mm-hmm. Because I think, how do we create that support team for them? And then I want to talk more about what we can do to support the caregiver mm-hmm. because it falls on my brother's shoulders. It fell on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. It's more than just saying, here's mom's checkbook, please write the checks. There's an emotional toll that happens to the caregiver. So I think there's two different lanes that we have to look at when supporting
3: mm-hmm.
6: those of cognitive decline and those that are taking care of them.
7: So the the priorities, and there's a couple that are like 1 and 1A, okay. besides having the conversation, you do want to talk about it. You don't want to put it off. You don't want to shove it under the rug, kick the can, the proverbial can down the road, is talk about it, discuss it. And if necessary, have a team, a family meeting with or without the person with dementia because they may not understand. They should have, uh, to use a phrase, they should have a vote.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in. And for the complete episodes, check out the links in this episode's description. As always, we appreciate all our listeners, and we look forward to what we can share with you in 2024. This podcast was brought to you by C2P an organization whose purpose is to educate, train, grow, and support holistic financial advisors so families can achieve true prosperity. Never miss an episode by subscribing now to discover new resources and strategies. Visit c2penterprises.com to learn how we can help scale and secure your business.